So welcome back to our fourth episode this week. If you're just now tuning in, this week in honor of Brain Awareness Week hosted by the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, we are releasing an episode each day with a guest. We will be interviewing someone on a specific topic within neuroscience. On our fourth episode, we have Dr. Matthew Cooper with us today. Welcome. Um, So tell us a bit about yourself and what you're studying um, and in terms of what you're researching and what your interests lie. Sure. Uh, Yeah, my name is Matt Cooper. I'm an assistant, or rather associate professor in the psychology department. I'm also assistant uh, director of the neuroscience uh, program. Uh, Teach classes in drugs and behavior, pharmacology. Uh, My lab with uh, graduate students and undergraduates, uh, we study animal models of uh, social stress to better understand stress-related mental illness. Awesome. Okay, so what exactly is behavioral neuroscience? Well, broadly, it is the study of the neural mechanisms that uh, control a wide swath of behavior. So that behavior could be very broad. It could be learning and memory, could be sleeping, feeding, emotions. Um, so uh, a wide swath of behavior across the animal kingdom and focusing on brain mechanisms. Okay. Nice. So you mentioned that your lab focuses specifically on um, stress. So could you just tell a little bit about um, just like the relationships between um, stress and social relationships? Yeah, right. Uh, good question because social stress is really the most common kind of stress that we modern humans uh, experience. We don't, uh, at least most of us are not experiencing temperature and nutritional stress, Mm -hmm. but we still experience a lot of stress, and it's usually in the form of uh, social relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, So that can take the form of of severe social stress, like aggression and violence. Um, It can just be more mild forms of social conflict that are pretty stressful. Uh, Bullying can be very stressful. So there's a whole lot, uh, at least with humans, um, of stress that's related to social relationships. And so we try to study that in animals, because um, in animals, you can, a lot of, uh, there are a lot of different kinds of stressors in animals as well. Uh, but social stressors are very uh, profound in animals. They an, initiate a large increase in stress hormones like cortisol. So we try to emphasize um, social stress in our, in our animal models to better translate to, to humans. Okay, awesome. Whenever you say um, social stress, could you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, broadly defined, it's where another individual uh, is the source of the stress so um, it it could doesn't have aggression is a is a classic example where individual number one is being aggressive to individual number two and the recipient of aggression is very stressed absolutely Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be physical or overt Mm -hmm. aggression like I said it it could be um, status conflict and social conflict could be social stress could in people come in the forms of poverty. Poverty can be mm-hmm. a social stressor. Mm-hmm. So whenever that stressor is really brought about because of another individual, it really falls in the category of social stress. Okay, awesome. So what piqued your interest in specifically researching stress in behavioral neuroscience? Piqued my interest. Um, I, I guess I would have to go back to my undergraduate experience. Um, when I was in college, there were uh, uh, there was a primate lab that studied baboons and macaques, 
and I thought they were super cool, and so I wanted to get involved and be an undergraduate research assistant in the monkey lab. <laughs> and when you start watching monkeys, you pretty quickly realize that the dominant animals are pretty mean to the subordinate animals. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't take long to realize that the subordinate animals are very stressed under a lot of different conditions. And so I was particularly interested going forward about how do these important animals cope with stress? They don't leave the group, they value the group, mm -hmm. but they're, how do they cope with the stress of being a subordinate animal? So from there, I uh, went on to graduate school where I studied more about dominance relationships in monkeys. After that, I did postdoc to better understand neural mechanisms and used rodent models to study um, aggression and social mm -hmm. stress in rodents so I could better understand the brain mechanisms. Okay. So, um, in your research uh, with stress, what particular areas of the brain are you looking at? Yeah, uh, we have focused on a couple. Uh, the amygdala is an important brain region for stress research. Uh, it's important in terms of aggression, and it's also important for stress, and it's very active in both of those situations. So, in our animals that are stressed, their amygdala is very active. Um, but we're what we're really then interested in is how animals cope with stress. And so that um, turns our attention to the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex um, controls and inhibits and puts the brakes on the amygdala. And so animals and people that cope better with stress have a more active prefrontal cortex that can put the brakes on the amygdala. So we look at that interaction between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And then beyond that, we look at how neurotransmitters like serotonin can tweak the whole system. Great. Nice. All right. So um, aside from the research that your lab is focusing on, do you know um, what are some other like big aspects of uh, stress research and relationships? Like what are some other t uh, topics within that area is being studied right now? Well, uh, within stress research, one big area is stress-related mental illness. Mm -hmm. And we know that stress is a risk factor for major depression, it's a risk factor certainly for PTSD, um, and we know that early life stressors can be risk factors for all kinds of conditions uh, as people get older. So there's been a big focus on what are the mechanisms related to um, stress-related changes in the brain that can um, promote or uh, put somebody on a path towards mental illness. Mm -hmm. The other side of that coin is what are the mechanisms that help prevent that from happening? Right. How mm -hmm. do people uh, animals cope with stress? Why are some individuals more resilient to stress? So you can look at it on either side of the coin about stress vulnerability uh, or, or resilience. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So why should UT students and other college students be uh, interested in this topic or area of research? I would expand beyond mental illness there. Certainly that is a big aspect to stress, um, but um, I think it's important for people to that experience stress in, in other ways, whether it's stress of studying for exams or stress of social relationships with your circle of friends, mm -hmm. um, that stress coping strategies can be learned, mm -hmm. right? That um, you know, maybe some people start off better at coping with stress than others, but for everybody, they can get better at it. Mm -hmm. And those coping strategies have um, neural mechanisms and they can be learned and changed over time. Mm -hmm. And so 
just for people to understand that you know they can become better copers uh, with stress and that um, that will change the brain and help them function better whether it's on exams or social relationships or uh, and then the other aspect of their life so if an individual does like have trouble coping with stress initially there's it's not like an end-all be-all there is like hope for them to like better cope with that in the future absolutely it doesn't mean that the stressor is going to lead to a clinical mental illness but it may impair some aspect of function that they wish they could do better with Mm -hmm. and they can Mm -hmm. certainly become better with uh, improved coping strategies Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah it's not the end of the world they can get better (laughs) at it right that's good yeah so what are some I guess like coping strategies um, that are like most popular uh, for people who undergo um, a lot of like who just deal with a lot of stress stressful environments yeah, uh, yeah, good question. Some of these are um, are fairly well known, uh, like exercise. Mm-hmm. It's still yeah. very important. It, it helps. Uh, it helps the brain. It helps uh, can help people cope with stress. I don't um, think many people want to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but it, it it's been shown in people and in a bunch of different animal uh, models about the neural mechanisms of how exercise really promotes. Um, stress resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other things that uh, can be done that are less physically taxing than that <laughs> exercise. Uh, things like mindfulness and meditation mm-hmm. can be really uh, good for um, enhancing uh, coping abilities and having people um, reduce their overall uh, levels of stress. Mm-hmm. Um, so that can be part. So even diet can help uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, improve so, um, and then I think the, another one, you can, we can keep adding things, um, is social buffering. So uh, it's important to have a good, you know, cl- whether your circle of friends or family or whoever that you're close with um, is there to help and support you in those difficult times mm-hmm. really helps buffer the effects of stress. Uh, mindfulness and meditation has been shown to uh, specifically activate parts of the brain that we look at in our rodents, which is the prefrontal cortex, and it really helps when you activate that brain region, you can inhibit some other brain regions like the amygdala, um, and that there's been a great series of studies in the um, University of Wisconsin with um, Tibetan uh, monks of, mm-hmm. and how they meditate in a, uh, in a scanner to understand what are the brain regions that are important. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't have to be a enlightened uh, to, uh, to achieve some benefit <laughs> from mindfulness and, and meditation. So there's certainly a degree um, and, okay. and, and there's a wide area for, for benefit there. Amazing. That's really cool. I feel like that is like a very untapped uh, like resource um, for stress resiliency for like a coping mechanism. Um, mm-hmm. So that's definitely like an, like an area that I'm also interested in too. Because like I'm, I'm sure when you were going through the list of like possible coping strategies like they were hitting on ones I've heard of, like the, the exercise, the, um, you know, having a good foundation, a good group around you, and also like sleep being important. Sleep's another one. Um, but mindfulness and meditation, kind of how it's being brought to the public more, not just this like guru kind of thing, I guess, that I associate with mindfulness and meditation. Mm-hmm. So like bringing it to regular everyday people. I just think it's interesting. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, so if someone were to go into the field of behavioral neuroscience, um, what kind of qualifications would they have to 
um, pursue and um, what type of laboratory experience should they seek out? Um, I think the important thing is just to get involved. So uh, if, if a person is an undergraduate, I would say just get involved in research, whether that is um, contacting faculty during the semester or maybe volunteering in the summer or as a post kind of internship to do after they graduate, whatever stage people are in, it's, it's important to just uh, get involved mm -hmm. in um, whether it's paid or volunteer uh, work. Um, then pursuing it, yes, to, to stay within the field of behavioral neuroscience will take some level of graduate training. It, it kind of depends on where people want to go with that. Um, a lot of people stay in the uh, realm of academia and then move on to master's and PhD uh, graduate programs. Um, there's certainly uh, room within healthcare and hospital settings to stay within the brain and behavior mm -hmm. uh, kind of field mm -hmm. or an industry in pharmaceutical industries and, uh, or uh, biotech industry is another area where people can stay in that kind of brain and health related space. But usually mm -hmm. it starts with some graduate training in, mm -hmm. in, as a master's or Right, so it doesn't only lead to like academia and research. They can go like multiple different paths. Right, that's a good point. Is that no, it doesn't have to lead to mm -hmm. university professor sort <laughs> right. of academic trajectory. Because yeah, there are a lot of within health broad healthcare uh, settings, a lot of um, possibilities there within healthcare settings, hospitals. Um, like I said, yeah, pharmaceutical companies, biotechs. Um, so, and then of course, academia is still mm -hmm. there as well, but yeah, yeah, so that people don't have to, and you don't have to know when you start yeah. what, you oh, know, yeah. exactly what you want to specialize in, mm -hmm. what you want to do, it's just important just to get involved. Okay, awesome. I did have one extra question that kind of goes on with your drugs and behavior um, class, so you did mention um, if people want to get involved with behavioral neuroscience, they have like the pharmacology route, um, right, so like what, what uh, are some of the things that you cover in your drugs and behavior class that I could speak to that pharmacology side of behavioral neuroscience? Um, yeah, well, there are maybe sort of two separate aims, and we cover them both in the class. One is uh, drug addiction, mm -hmm. right? So then there is, and that includes nicotine, alcohol, heroin, uh, marijuana, LSD, you know, the whole gamut of, <laughs> yeah. uh, of drugs. And so the mechanisms related to drug addiction and then treatment for uh, drug addiction. That's one huge area mm -hmm. in terms of uh, pharmacology. Another one is development of psychotropic medication. So kind of separate from drug addiction, we also cover um, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anxiolytic drugs, drugs for ADHD, um, autism. So there's a whole another whole mm -hmm. class of pharmaceuticals. Uh, and so in, in the class we, we, we take both of those approaches and we talk types of pharmacological approaches. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. So our last thing would be just, is there any um, group or event on campus um, or in the Knoxville community that you would want to uh, plug for at towards the very end? Yeah, I would have to uh, give a plug uh, for the Brain Awareness Campaign. <laughs> uh, brain Awareness has been going on at, at UT for almost uh, 10 years. It's gotten bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. um, it started out as a week, and then we called it Brain Awareness Week, and it was the week after spring break. And that's still the case. We still have Brain Awareness yep. Week the week after spring break. Uh, but this year, it's gotten so big, it doesn't really hold itself to just that week. So we have the whole month of March, and we're calling it the Brain Awareness Campaign. Um, 
there are about 10 separate student organizations on campus that are all contributing. Uh, and so I would just direct people to the website. Uh, and if you just look for UTK Brain Awareness Campaign, you'll see a whole calendar, see the March calendar of events. There's something almost every day, mm -hmm. whether it's a panel discussion, a workshop, a seminar, a trivia night, uh, something that uh, and there's something on mindfulness and meditation you'll have to go yes <laughs> yes perfect all right so that concludes our fourth episode for the brain awareness campaign and a big thank you to dr matthew cooper for coming and talking about this with us all right so if you're interested in learning more about the brain awareness campaign be sure to visit the website brainawareness.utk.edu for all the details and thank you for tuning in